So today's reading is from Genesis chapter 11, verse 27 to chapter 12, verse 9. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Malka. She was the daughter of Haran, and the father of both Malka and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, and she had no children. Terai took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived to 205 years, and he died in Haran. The call of Abram. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah, at Shechem. The Canaanites were then in the land. But the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord for who, who had appeared to him. From there he went towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. Great, thanks very much, Helen. It's good to see you all this morning. Um, Let's pray as we come to God's Word together. Lord God, you are the source of all blessing, and you long to pour your blessings out on us, and so we do pray now that you will prepare our hearts to receive from you and be blessed by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, within your own lifetimes, I wonder, what would you consider to be the most pivotal moments in history? Moments which moved humankind maybe in a different direction and changed the future. Some of you will be old enough to remember uh, VE Day, the end of the, the Second World War. I guess for me, uh, it was probably the, the fall of the, the Berlin Wall, the, the fall of communism. Um, maybe also 9-11, the events of 9-11, the, the consequences and impact they had on world events. What about people? Um, they've had made a significant impact on history. Maybe you think immediately of Winston Churchill, Billy Graham, or maybe Nelson Mandela. 
Well, this morning we're going back further in time to look at a significant moment in history, the impact of which affects us today. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at a particular character who God chose to use, and that is Abraham. But before we jump in at uh, chapter 12 of Genesis, let's um, come back to that. Let's uh, start from the beginning. The story of the Bible begins, as many of you will know, with creation. God created the world with the purpose of filling the earth with the knowledge of his glory. He created humankind to, to glorify him by submitting to his loving rule and enjoying his generous goodness. However, people decided to reject God's love, and rather than relying on him and living for his glory, they decided they'd rather do the things their way and seek their own glory. The problem is that it's impossible for God, being God, to give his glory to another. And so with the fall of Adam, the whole human race fell and became alienated from God. And in the first part of the book of Genesis, we see the consequences of that rebellion. Sin and death enter the world. There is conflict between people leading to murder. And by the time we get to chapter 6, we are told this. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Consequence was the flood, which wipes out humankind, but that wasn't the end because God still has a plan of rescue for humankind. And he saved Noah and his family. But even though he saved them and uh, humankind was saved physically, sin at this stage has not yet been dealt with. And it's not long before the arrogance, the self-reliance of people is seen again in their desire to build a tower, the Tower of Babel, which they want to demonstrate their, their greatness. And that leads God to scatter people over the face of the earth and introduce uh, different languages. And after that incident, which we can read about in chapter 11 of, of Genesis, we are given a genealogy that follows the family line of Shem, the, the eldest son of Noah, and a descendant of Adam. And that line leads us to Terah, the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Which brings us to the start of our reading in verse 27 of chapter 11, and an incredibly significant moment in human history. It was to shape the future of humankind from that point on. And the amazing thing about this uh, point in history is that God chooses a man who himself is pretty insignificant. He's completely undeserving. That man is Abraham, somebody who lives in a place called Ur and who worships false gods. But in his sovereign grace, God comes to him and says, I'm going to bless you, and through you bring blessing to the whole world. And that promise marks the start of the history of the people of Israel and thereafter the church. Now, the immediate question you may have is, is why? You know, not just why this man, 
But why this way of rescuing human, humankind from God's judgment? And why set aside a nation called Israel, beginning with uh, Abraham, and then go through 2,000 years of uh, a roller coaster rise of obedience and disobedience before Jesus is sent into the world? Why not send Jesus then? Well, we don't know the, the answers to those questions because we can't understand the, the, the mind of God. His, his thoughts are much higher than our thoughts. God could have chosen any way to redeem humankind, but this is the way he chose. He chose to bless a single man and begin a plan of salvation that would eventually lead to Jesus and the salvation of the world. And the story of Abraham, or Abraham as God later renames him, is not just important for Jews, it is important for each one of us. Because it's not really a story about a person, but a story about God and about his promises for humankind. And hopefully over the course of these next few weeks, as we study it together, we will grow in our appreciation and love for God. Before we come on to the promises themselves, I think it'd be helpful just to understand a bit more about the, um, uh, the historical background. So here's a little map to, to help us. Terra uh, lives in Ur of the, uh, the Chaldeans, which is the, uh, the, the yellow blob on the right-hand side um, down in modern-day Iraq. I believe to be a wealthy trading city, not far from the coast. The coast would have been further inland at that point. It's been silted up more since. Um, a lot of different gods were worshipped in that place. And Terah has three children. One of them, Haran, becomes the father of Lot, who we'll find out about in the next couple of weeks. Um, but his father, Haran, dies. Abraham, we're told, is married to Sarai, and his brother, Nahor, is married to Milka. And we're given an important fact in verse 30 of chapter 11 that Sarai was childless, it says, because she was not able to conceive. Well, in verse 31, we're told that Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, and together they set out from Ur to go to Canaan, which is the red blob on the left-hand side. However, they didn't get all the way to Canaan, and instead, when they got to Haran, the, the purple blob at the top, um, they settled there, which is where Terah lived the rest of his life before he died. When they're told why they stopped there um, and didn't continue, maybe it was because it was comfortable there, maybe the religion wasn't so different from where they came from in Chaldea. Um, maybe they didn't fancy the idea of going to live amongst the Canaanites. Uh, we know from other passages that uh, Abraham's brother Nahor went with them, but he also stopped there in Haran. And it's at this point we're told that God said to Abraham, go. Go from your country, verse 1 of chapter 12, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, what is the significance of that command to go? Why does he have to go at this stage? Well, presumably because if God is going to start a new nation devoted to him, then there has to be a complete break with the materialistic, idolatrous environment from which he came from. Now, that would have required a lot of courage to go when things were maybe quite comfortable in Haran, where there were lots of people he knew. Um, 
We're not also sure about just how much Abraham knows about God at this stage. But to get to know God, he needs to go. He needs to step out in faith. There is a sense, of course, in which every believer has to make a break with the past if they are to enjoy a relationship with God through Jesus. That's what repentance is, isn't it? Turning away from our old way of life and turning toward God. Now, it's possible that Terah, um, Abraham's father, received that same command from God to go to Canaan. But having got as far as Haran, he failed to make that decisive break and continue to Canaan. The only command to Abraham is go. The rest of what God says is made up of a load of promises. So what were these promises? Well, let's have a look at them. The first one is land. God tells Abraham to go to the land I will show you. And at this stage, the promise of land is not very explicit, but later in verse 7, God says, to your offspring I will give this land. And it becomes even more of a promise next week um, when we come on to chapter 13, and we'll look at that in more detail next time. But for now, land is a measure of God's blessing. It's seen in the fruitfulness of the land. Um, likewise, God is able to demonstrate his protection of his people as he enables them to prevent other nations taking over their, their land. But when Abraham received this, this promise... It seems incredible because how can he even imagine that he and his descendants will live in this land which is owned and occupied by the Canaanites? How will he ever be able to grow crops and uh, have uh, animals on this land? Well, the second promise is people. God says in verse 2, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. Now, this is another impossible promise. Um, We've been told quite clearly in chapter 11 that Sarai was childless because she wasn't able to conceive. So how can Abraham possibly have many descendants and become a great nation? Well, the wonderful thing about God's promises and his blessings is that the, the more humanly impossible they may appear, the more they are able to demonstrate God's power and his glory. And thirdly, blessing. God says, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Five times in two verses, this word bless is used It's a word we use quite a lot in church. But what exactly does it mean? Well, it's basically to receive God's goodness in whatever form he chooses to give it. In the Old Testament, blessings were often physical, the blessing of land and wealth and children. In the New Testament, they are predominantly spiritual. In Ephesians, uh, Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he goes on to talk about the blessing of being chosen, being adopted into God's family, being redeemed, being forgiven. 
And although those spiritual blessings are are more important, we shouldn't take um, physical blessings for granted. If we have been blessed with with wealth, with, with health and a family, we need to give God thanks for that. The great thing about a blessing is that many others can benefit from it. God has begun his plan of salvation with one individual, but his ultimate plan is for the world. Being outside of time, God can see Abraham being blessed at the same time as he can see the world being blessed. But of course, Abraham is in time, and so he's told all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, even if he doesn't live to see that. The blessing was the blessing of salvation that would go out to ultimately all nations. In the New Testament, we're, we're warned about um, holding on to blessings. They were told to use them for the benefit of others. And Jesus said, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. Which is why we as a church, having been blessed with much, are expected to be a blessing to others. Whether that's helping other churches who don't yet have a, a pastor, or training, sending out gospel workers to be a blessing elsewhere. But of course, the greatest way in which we can bless is by telling others about the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Well, so much for the blessing, but what about um, the conditions? Are there any conditions attached to these promises? Lots has been written about whether the, the covenant God made with Abraham was conditional or unconditional. In other words, did Abraham have to meet any conditions to be able to enjoy the blessings? And if he did, then to what extent can we trust that the promises that God makes will be fulfilled? Certainly when we read these promises, they appear to be absolute. It says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's all I will. And if God says I will, who are we to doubt that this will happen? But it's preceded by the command to go. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household. And it makes us think, well, what if he doesn't go? This is not like um, that TV program, I'm not sure what it's called, but some of you may have seen it, where they take a couple or a family to Australia and give them a sample of what it might be like to live, um, live the dream. Um, it's basically about the fact that your money gets you more in Australia and you can live a more comfortable lifestyle. But if it doesn't work out, you can just jump on a plane and go back to the UK. Now, this command to Abraham is to give it all up. Give up all that he holds dear for an unknown land promised by a God who doesn't really know. But verse 5 says, Abraham took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they'd acquired in Haran. They're taking everything. And from chapter 14, we can work out that that probably means actually going with several hundred people as well. This is a great gathering of people going to Canaan. There's no going back. It seems to be a test of faith. If you go, then I will bless you. 
Also, if we go to chapter 22, verse 16, which is um, the story of Abraham being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, which we'll come on to in a few weeks' time, it says, it's on the screen in front of me if you haven't got it in your Bibles, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Again, this seems to be a condition attached to God's promise that Abraham has been obedient. I think part of the problem is whether we think God will allow his his sovereign plans to depend on a fallen human being with all his or her weaknesses. The fact of the matter is that God is the one who changes our hearts. He's the one who causes us to want to obey him. It's a spiritual transformation. It's not that we somehow in our wisdom suddenly think, yeah, this all makes sense. I think I will be a Christian. I've weighed up all the the other religious options and um, uh, this seems to be the most feasible. We may have done that. But it is God who opens our eyes to see the truth. Who breaks the pride within us that wants to do things our way. That thinks we know best. He changes that and causes us to trust him. And it's the same with Abraham. God causes him to respond in faith and obedience. That is irresistible grace. Abraham's heard the call of God, and he's compelled in his inner being to follow that call. Just as Jesus calls his disciples, and his disciples are compelled to follow him. And just as each of us who are called by Jesus are compelled to follow him. So yes, in one sense it's conditional, but in another we can trust that God will fulfill his promises. And as this happens, notice there's a growing relationship here. In verse 1 we're told that God spoke to Abraham, and having followed his command, in verse 4, God appeared to Abraham. It's easy to gloss over that, but for God to appear to someone, that is quite, quite remarkable. We don't know how he appeared, But Abraham responds by building an altar to the Lord, by um, probably offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving to show that he believed and trusted in that promise. And from there, we're told that Abraham moves on to the hills east of Bethel, where he, he also built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. So he remains dependent on God. He's growing in his trust in God. He's walking with the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that suddenly Abraham becomes God's sort of puppet and does everything precisely as God wants. And we see that in the little incident that carries on in verse 10 onwards, um, as uh, we're told about a famine in, uh, in the land, and Abraham goes down to Egypt. Maybe he should have stayed put, we, we don't know, but what we do know is that what he did in Egypt was not what God would have wanted him to do. Instead of trusting that God would keep him and his wife safe, he's afraid. 
And so he takes matters into his own hands and tells Egyptians that Sarai is actually not his sister, um, um, is not his wife, but his sister. That could have gone horribly wrong. Pharaoh, uh, when he found out about it, could have just got rid of Abraham and kept Sarai from himself. But God intervenes in Abraham's failings and saves the day. Because he has promised that from Abraham will come a great nation. So there's this constant tension between God ensuring his promise will be kept, his divine sovereignty, and Abraham needing to be obedient to God, but sometimes failing that human responsibility. So what can we learn from this? Well, God's love for us is unconditional. We don't have to do something to earn it, to deserve it. He loved us before we ever loved him. And yet he calls us to respond in faith and obedience. What does that faith look like? Well, it may be that God is calling you to follow Jesus right now, to put your trust in him rather than in yourself. Maybe he's calling you to be baptized. Maybe he's calling you to become a member of this church. Maybe he's calling you to become involved in a particular area of service. Maybe he's calling you to help somebody in need. Maybe he's calling you to reach out to somebody who is searching for God and needs your your help. Maybe he's calling you to give more of your money to his work. Whatever it is, how are you going to respond to that call? It may be God is saying to you, go. Go and serve him somewhere else. And you're saying, but I don't want to go. I'm very happy here, thank you very much. But if we're Christians, our lives are not about about us and what we want. They're about what God wants for us. And that is always the best thing for us. Are you going to respond in faith and obedience? Or are you going to stay in Haran like Abraham's father did where he felt comfortable and never made the break with the past? Don't resist God's call. Well, the challenge is for us to trust and obey. But what about these promises? Who are the the heirs of the promise? Who are the ones who are going to be blessed through Abraham? Do they have any relevance for us today? The children of Abraham are not simply the physical descendants of Abraham. As it says in Romans, it says, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. As Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. So who then are the children of Abraham, the heirs of the promise? Well, Galatians 3 says this, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw 
that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This promise to Abraham is the gospel, is a gospel promise. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, then you are a child of Abraham. You are a child of the promise, whatever nation you come from. And God is your father in heaven. His blessing will remain on you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. You'll be with him in glory one day. And it's through his son's work on the cross that you've been able to experience that blessing. And it's through your faith and obedience that you've demonstrated that you have received that blessing. As it says in 2 Corinthians 1, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Amen. Let's just have a moment of quiet to just listen from, to God, whether maybe he's talking to you, maybe he's calling you. Maybe he's calling to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe he's calling you to respond in obedience in some other way. Let's have a moment of quiet just to thank God for the fulfillment of his promises in Jesus Christ. Father God, thank you for these promises you made to Abraham. Thank you that you fulfilled them in Jesus Christ. And thank you that we have received the blessings from these promises. Thank you for all the many spiritual blessings that we have in Jesus. And Lord, help us to respond, to continue to respond in faith and obedience. Lord, there's someone here this morning who has been called to put their trust in Jesus Christ for the first time, Lord. Make that clear to them. And Lord, give us the, the hearts to respond in obedience in many different ways, in ways in which you individually might be calling us at this time. Lord, thank you that we are children of the promise. In Jesus' name, amen.